Mentally Unscripted, Episode 39. Mortal Kombat Mental Models and Taco-Flavored Protein Bars with Jeremy Thomas. Hey, y'all. This is uh, Scott checking in here from Mentally Unscripted. We've got Paul, and we have a very special guest today, uh, Jeremy Thomas. Some of you may remember back on Episode 32, we had Myron Weber on. And Myron comes, came to us from the Mental Supermodels podcast. Now we've got his co-host, Jeremy. Myron was a good introduction, but I think we all know Jeremy calls the shots over there. I think he's the real brains behind the operation. So we'll be able to, that. yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll pick his brain. I'm sure he'll tell us everything Myron got wrong. And he'll probably school Paul and I a bit on mental models. Jeremy, just before we get started, I have got the name of your podcast right here in front of me, Mental Supermodels. I will inevitably call it super mental models probably three or four times during this podcast. So you have my permission to rather harshly interrupt and correct me. So sort of the proverbial or I guess metaphorical uh, rolled up newspaper to the nose. So anyway, let's get into this. Jeremy helps decision makers organize and simplify their thought processes to assess opportunities, solve problems, and make decisions. He works with both business and technology leaders and is the co-host of Mental Supermodels, where he discusses practical techniques that managers and their teams can use to work together more effectively. Welcome, Jeremy. We are thrilled to have you here. How are you doing today? Hey, guys. Uh, it's uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Absolutely. Can you just quickly expand on your background a little bit for us? How did you get into mental models? How did you hook up with uh, Myron? Tell me what it's like with Myron behind the scenes. Yeah, well, my co-host Myron Weber, of course, and I have been working together for a while on, on different projects like technology projects, business process improvement projects, and, and working with different companies. And uh, at, at some point, we, we realized that we have a similar way in how we structure our thinking and approach situations. So we thought it'd be great to put some of our thoughts together and produce some content that demonstrates our way of thinking about things to the world. So, so yeah. So we, you know, we, we came up with the mental supermodels. Actually, that was Myron's. We'll, we'll credit him with the title if, if you don't like it. <laughs> uh, if you do like it, I came up with it. But, but no, Myron came up with that title because, you know, we were just talking one day and, uh, about the way that we were thinking about certain uh, aspects of projects we were working on, he said, uh, "You know, we should, uh, we should, we should do a podcast and about mental models." So, uh, you know, it's just, you know, Myron's actually really a, a great guy, and you know, we've worked on a lot of projects together, but you know, he's just a genuine guy to work with, and um, I, and I appreciate the way that he approaches situations, and even though I have my own way of thinking about things, I've learned a lot. Uh, working together with him. And he's he's helped formalize kind of my thinking about mental models. Did you have an aha moment when you discovered mental models? Uh, well, first, I didn't actually realize that what I was doing was mental modeling until Myron actually mentioned it one day. And I was like, oh, well, I just kind of bucket my thoughts into categories and organize them in a way that makes it easier to understand a situation. And he was like, yeah, those are mental models. <laughs> so like, like I said, he's actually more educated on mental models where, whereas I just apply practical techniques to thought processes. So I feel like I'm a little more rudimentary about it, but he, he still calls them mental models. So I appreciate that he does that. Uh, but 
now that I actually recognize that what I'm doing naturally, that what I've been doing naturally is mental modeling, I can be more intentional about it, which I have found also helps recognize how other people, so that you know you can adjust your communication to it and, and better influence a situation. For example, I think this is the actual aha moment. Several years ago, I was working with a manager who was trying to put a strategic plan together and they had so much going on in this thing, so many ideas. And they were getting frustrated because they couldn't get everything to fit nice and neatly in a step-by-step plan. But I could see all the little ideas kind of co-mingled in there. So I separated different concepts that I thought went together and ultimately came up with a plan that had six or seven different work streams. And they looked at it and said, this is the first time I've really understood what I even want to do. So I've just continued to build upon that process of simplifying. So I don't bring like a formal mental model, but I learned how to just simplify what I saw that other people couldn't see. And, uh, you know, sometimes it makes me look like I know what I'm doing. I think that's normally step one when we have a problem is to Take a step back and ask yourself, am I looking at this the right way or am I asking the right question? Am I trying to solve the right problem? I think a lot of us start off that same way where we have a structured way of thinking, a logical way of thinking, and it's only later that we realize that we're applying these models over and over again to our thinking. That's exactly right, actually. And and that's where I feel like I've been a little more informal in, in my mental modeling because it is just things, processes, ways of thinking that I've been doing for a long time that just became a model. We know that you have a definition of mental model on your mental supermodels website. If you just had to give a, a two-minute elevator pitch or a one-minute elevator pitch on what is a mental model, what would what would you say? The simple uh, way to describe it for me, and, and if I compare myself to Myron, like I said, I think he's more formal in the way that he understands mental models. He has a good understanding of the theories behind them and the actual names of mental models. But when I say mental models, I'm talking about having an approach to break down a situation and simplify it and put it into a perspective that you can understand and communicate. So simplification is something that I come back to a lot. Oh, perfect. I like that definition a lot. Uh, Do you you have something, Paul? Yeah, yeah. So I I was thinking about that definition and how, uh, so, so it sounds like it's it's always uh, based or rooted in a, a problem. And stop me if that's inaccurate. Uh, but it, we we talk about the simplification of it. Is it is it usually starting with a problem to understand its constituent parts and simplifying those, or can it also just be a description, a descriptive way of describing uh, a process? Yeah. Well, I think I think of problems and opportunities. Okay. So that's how I would apply it. So it's not always just trying to solve problems. Uh, it could be trying to identify opportunities, uh, which can be complicated because when there's a lot of things kind of floating around and you see, you know, you have some people that will just come up with idea after idea after idea, but you still need a way to just simplify it and identify what are the best opportunities here. That reminds me of stoicism where they don't make a distinction between problems and opportunities. They view them as the same thing. A problem is an opportunity. That's a mental model that I've tried to adopt uh, that I think has been 
very helpful to me. Yeah, that's a good point. So season one of Mental Supermodels, you guys discussed your six-stage plan to go from strategy to execution. And I thought that was, it was a great series. I think you guys really knocked it out of the park with that. Thank you. We want people to go over and listen to it, but if you just had to give a quick summary of it, what is the summary and why should we adopt this? And in what situations is it going to be the most beneficial? Yeah, well, I created this six-stage framework uh, a few years ago with a big goal of driving strategy to execution, which really isn't much different than what millions of other people try to do. There's a lot of tips and techniques and templates and and ways of bridging strategy to execution. Um, But still, every company that I would work with still seemed to struggle with the same problems. And it didn't matter how seasoned the executives and management teams were uh, and still are. They struggle with figuring out things like what to focus on, how to get vague ideas out of their heads, how to determine which efforts are likely to make a difference, and ultimately how to get everybody rowing in the same direction. So a few key problems that we address with this framework are, one, getting managers to be more specific about what they want, because ambiguity is a time killer for everyone. And two, I also want a way to identify realistic and high probability opportunities that could give these managers what they want. And three, uh, while defining initial opportunities can kind of be easy, maintaining focus when priorities start changing is the real problem. So defining strategies is the fun part. But when, like I always say, when tornadoes start hitting and everybody tries to execute, it's important to have a plan on how you're going to communicate and how you're going to make decisions. So we have a strategy pillar in our framework that consists of discovering, mapping, and prioritizing, which is about defining goals, identifying the highest probable opportunities, and prioritizing. And our execution pillar, which consists of uh, managing, validating, and measuring, is used as ongoing checkpoints throughout, let's say, a, a you know a project Can you, uh, or a, or a planning uh, session, planning process. You can use these as, as ongoing checkpoints because a lot of times strategic plans will just be handed over to people who either really don't know where to start or they're working away thinking that they're on the right track while dealing with distractions that continue to derail them. So we have this overall framework that helps define strategies and execution plans and then bridges the two of them. But of course, how is that different than everything else that's out there? Well, I'll say that it works for us because it fits the way we think. And if people are struggling with making decisions and executing and they're overwhelmed, we assume that they could benefit from some type of plan and process. So we introduce our way of thinking and help people focus on establishing certain mindsets. And if they end up taking a different approach that works better for them, at least we got them started or we got them unstuck uh, and got them to start thinking about their situations in a more structured and efficient way to work through problems and identify opportunities and make decisions. So adopting our model is a means to get unstuck when you're overwhelmed and to start think, uh, start establishing habits for how you think about each step along the way and ultimately adapt it to your way of thinking. So we look at it as a starting point 
to help start building habits of thinking in a structured way when you're not using something else. Even though there's a lot of information out there about bridging strategies to execution, people still struggle with it. And because of that, we just tried to come up with a way that works uh, with the way that we think about getting from one step to the next step and put that into a framework that we can then talk to people about, get them focused on structuring their thoughts. And again, if they ultimately want to adapt it to their way of thinking, then that's great. We at least feel good that we got them unstuck, started down the path of thinking in models. I've got a question there because um, I, I think that's, I'm not sure if I shared my background before, but I, I did corporate consulting for, for over a decade. I was at the big four. And uh, so I have very similar experience because I was in the management consulting side, very similar experience working with organizations and seeing them fail. I'm curious your experience because you said, you know, it doesn't matter how seasoned the teams are. doesn't matter how well they think they understand what they're going to do. They, they, they're coming to you because they're stuck. Do you see themes that come back to models of why they're not able to execute, why they can't bridge this gap? There, there are themes, and you know, I have a few key models that can get get to here in a bit. You know, I have a few top models that that I use, but you know, I find ambiguity is something that comes up a lot, and people always talk about how you know a, a request or something is it's ambiguous. <laughs> And they're not really sure what does it mean, what what to do. And I think I've seen a lot from from the top level, from management and, and executives. They they got to the top for a reason. They're really good at something. Mm-hmm. And uh, but whatever that thing is, they still have a hard time getting thoughts out of their head. And and I don't know if, it, if it's because they've you know if they're an executive or a senior level manager. They've been working for a long time, probably, and they have a lot of different experiences. And I think that a lot of that kind of gets jumbled up in their head. And whenever they try to to work on something strategically or help their team execute, they struggle with getting these ideas out of their head. And they just hope that everybody around them can figure out what they really mean. So I find that, that, that's, a common, that that's a common theme. And it really, I think it happens more when the when the bridge to execution needs to happen because they're really good at the strategic planning. They'll go to offsites, they'll, you know, they'll have a fun time and they work on the strategy and that's, you know, like like I like I say all the time, like that's the fun part, yeah, the strategy. Right. You know, everybody's excited and it sounds amazing when you see these strategic plans, then they get produced into, you know, a 50-page document or something and now they come back and they hand it over to teams and they're like this is going to be a great year. Yeah. <laughs> and and the teams are they don't even know where to start. Yeah. They're already so busy with everything that they're that they're currently doing. So I think, you know, the, the management teams, they don't take into account what everyone's already doing. They have some vague ideas in their head that they call strategies, but they're hoping that somebody can just figure out how to take their ideas and turn them into something and execute on it. And I think that that's a common thing that I've seen is how to really execute on, on yeah. a plan. So, so they, they have really interesting ideas, maybe poorly articulated uh, at times or just insufficiently articulated. And then there's, there's a hope <laughs> that the, the people that they've hired, that they've perhaps cultivated even for a long time are able to translate that idea into something meaningful. Yeah. And, and I, I see that 
a lot. I don't know if you, if you agree, if, if that's something that you uh, have seen in the management it, consulting world. I, I, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually very consistent. There's um, the other aspect of it, I guess. So you have that, that part of it, which is about a communication. It's about an idea and, and having some of those communication skills, right? Because they may be able to communicate and inspire people, but then you have these, this sort of this other realm um, of communication that has to be there for a strategic plan that can make people uncomfortable, right? Depends on how ambitious and bold the, the, the plan is, right? And you, you have uh, what I would say is mental baggage that all of your recruits and the people that are reporting to you have when they, when they hear about these plans, these bold, ambitious ideas. Because as you said, they already have a BAU, right? They have their business as usual stuff that they're taking care of. Now you're, now you're tasking them with additional work that is supposed to, at some point, increase the pie or reduce costs, increase revenue, whatever the case may be. Move the needle. Exactly. And they're, they're asking themselves, well, how, what, what exactly am I supposed to prioritize? Because let's face it, the, the managers and leaders are, are excited about the strategy. They, they just did an offsite where they ate all kinds of lovely corporate food and, and they're excited to see where this plan goes. And you're going, well, okay, that's great. But, you know, I still have to report back to you on all the operational metrics I'm dealing with. So there, there's these other elements too that, that I feel like are, are, are perhaps at times ill-defined where you've got operations stuff that's day-to-day and then you've got project-based. And so some of the alignment is missing. Think about, as you talk about models, being able to communicate these concepts in, a, in different ways, right? Maybe ways that as a leader, you're not necessarily comfortable with, but you're recognizing that your, your team needs a better approach uh, is a really good tool. Uh, and I, I think it would have, just even my own communication, you know, thinking back to years ago, would have been very beneficial if I could have thought through ways more mental model and less specifics. Um, just you got to be able to do both. At times you need the specifics and the details. Other times you need the abstraction. I'm not sure if you agree with that uh, evaluation or not. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, people think about things in, in different ways. And I kind of have this concept that I've thought about before where you have in a corporation, you have some people that went to business school and some people that didn't. Mm-hmm. And you have some people that actually grew up in the technology world, like I did. I actually yeah. spent you know twenty years in technology, working on the IT side before moving into more of like the business management, business analytics side. And what I actually found was that there's this point where your senior managers, all you know, a, a lot of them went to business school, and they have a different way of thinking. They actually learned in school different ways of thought and modeling. When you come up through IT and technology, you come up from a support kind of background. You're just like getting things done on a daily basis without really planning stuff out. And, you know, and I've seen where those two worlds kind of need to come together. And that's where the communication comes in. That's where sometimes the manager, I feel like, could express themselves in, in a more specific way, because not everybody's thinking the same way. Not everybody has the same background that they had. Uh, so they're not all approaching it the same way. And I think that's where models can be like a common language, where if you can communicate a way, a structured way of thinking, it helps everybody kind of get on the same page. Absolutely. Yeah. Instead of everyone speaking five different languages and expecting other people to translate, right? <laughs> yeah. Imagine if all your IT systems worked on the exact same uh 
language and code base, right? I mean, the efficiencies (laughs) are uh, amazing. Yes, agreed, agreed. Listening to you two talk, that reminds me back, or reminds me of uh, back in episode 36, we talked about failures of leadership. And the hypothesis that we worked up during that episode was that there's a difference between managers and leaders. Managers manage resources, leaders they inspire people to try to achieve some goal. And we're seeing a failure of leadership because organizations are not making that distinction. They're taking people who are technically good at a job, promoting them into management, and then expecting them to be leaders. And it sounds like, based on your model, does that sound like a hypothesis that you would agree with based on that model? And if you agree yeah, with it, then it was all my idea. If you don't agree with it, then it was all <laughs> Paul's idea. So, Yeah. yeah. No, we'll we'll certainly credit you with that. Uh, but yeah, there's a transition period that happens, and it it happens during middle management. And I think middle management is difficult for a lot of people for that reason because they're going through a transition period where they're going from actually doing the work to now supervising people and doing the work to then being responsible for work that they're not even doing to then having to figure out how to lead and inspire people to get them to do stuff when while you're not there. And it's like this transition that I always kind of call the middle management is like a hard kind of ocean to swim through because it's such a transitory uh, time period that, you know, I actually, I like, I didn't really like the middle management aspect. I, I spent time in it and I realized that it wasn't for me. I either wanted to be doing or I wanted to be deciding, but that middle part is a hard transitory process to go through. Yeah. And unfortunately, in my experience, you get those middle managers who realize that they, they're lacking something in the leadership world or in the leadership realm. So then they just start trying to manage even harder. Uh, so they, they, they sort of just inspire by placing more controls and they try to inspire people by placing more controls, um, more to do lists, more, more to do lists, uh, you know, daily, um, progress reports and all of that stuff into place. So it's almost like they're trying to take away the carrot and use the stick, uh, to, as a form of leadership. Yeah. And, and it's really no fault of their own. I mean, it's a hard thing to go through. You have to learn how to make your way through that process. But yes, I've, I've definitely seen those that will start speaking louder, speaking more because they want to establish themselves as a leader just by talking more. But that isn't always the answer, but they'll do that. Right, right. Yeah. Sometimes the good leaders talk less. They have this knack of making you think you're the one that's coming up with all the great ideas, but they're sort of guiding you in the direction they want you to go the whole time. That's a great point. Yeah. So speaking of management and leadership, what are your top mental models for managers to help them navigate this world of being a manager? And like you said, navigate the world of going from a more technical role as an employee up into that mental management role and then into those leadership positions. Yeah, I I have three top models that actually became core guiding principles for me because I use them so much. And they're communicate with intention, starting with the end in mind and seeking out value. To communicate your intention, and, and we've kind of talked touched on these things as we were going through our conversation, but here's how I formalized formalized those thoughts. Uh, to communicate your intention, which is done by limiting assumptions and increasing facts. This is a way that I address ambiguity and implicit ideas, uh, meaning that you assume people know what's in your head. So if I'm reading through a plan or I'm given a request, 
I would think if I were to start on this right now, how many assumptions am I making about what needs to be done? Am I assuming a due date or who's going to use what I'm producing or who needs to be involved or which decisions need to be made? If for each of these, I'm making an assumption, I could be wrong. So I want to ask questions that clarify and increase my facts. And if I'm the leader in the situation, I want to encourage people to ask questions that limit their assumptions and increase their facts because I don't always know what somebody else already knows. And a part of being a leader is encouraging to ask these questions because it benefits everybody really in the end. And an example actually that, that I thought about, um, you know, is, you know, let's, let's say that a manager wants to start a project that involves a lot of data analysis. And I'm taking, you know, these things from real world experiences that I've been through. But, you know, let's say a, a manager wants to start this project, it involves a lot of data analysis, and they want an output that shows the effectiveness of marketing campaigns. And they say, uh, provide what you can next week. So you're probably thinking, which campaigns do I analyze? All of them? The last couple? And what's meant by effectiveness? How's that defined? And on and on. And as the manager, what are you really looking for? Do you want output that just simply says pass or fail? Or do you want to see the people that were involved in the campaigns or whatever? And if you know these things, then be proactive and give a more specific definition of what you want so that you're reducing assumptions. And while it's easy to say, just be specific, just tell me what you want. It's not always easy. People don't do that. So if I think about it in terms of a model, I want to say, com communicate your intention, limit the assumptions, like intentionally limit the assumptions and increase facts. And just by thinking through, well, what, what, are, what are they assuming or what am I assuming? If you could just start stamping out those assumptions, now you're effectively increasing the facts and making your ideas more explicit and communicating your intention. So, so that's one that I think is pretty powerful. I'm just smiling here because you hit on two of my favorites, which are number one, check your assumptions. Go through whatever process you have to go through and try to identify all the assumptions you're making. And then number two is define your terms. Because if, if you and I are talking about the same thing when we talk about effectiveness, that eliminates a lot of the assumptions that we're making. And that eliminates a lot of the, the vagaries and miscommunications between the two of us. So I definitely would buy that one 100%. That's a good one. Yeah, I, I think that's step. absolutely fantastic. And, and I, I think my experiences, I, I'm thinking about all the experiences in my head um, of times when, when people, th there's almost a default to say, okay, uh, exactly what you said. Well, just uh, share, all, share all the information you have by next week and you're, you're going, well, everything that you just said, right? Maybe if you spent five minutes asking, well, what exactly is it I think we need, then you can limit um, all this wasted time, right? Um, because a lot of people are eager to please and they do want to do a good job, but then they're going down a, a crazy rabbit hole. Is there, do you find that there's specific questions or trains of, or, or kind of paths to, to unearth some of those assumptions? Or is it really unique to each position or each I guess, situation you come across? That's a good question. I think it's probably unique, but communicating your intention, I think if you come back to knowing that you're solving a problem or you're seeking an opportunity, really trying to understand what is the problem that needs to be solved, because I, I think that that's not always clear. So I think that I, I think that's a pretty consistent starting point for me is what am I, what am I really solving for? And then I can communicate my intention 
to solving that particular problem or seeking that opportunity. But I think getting clarity on that is important in, in all cases. Yeah, it makes sense. The second model that, that I had mentioned was starting with the end in mind. This is one that, again, I use so much, I just considered it a part of my core guiding principles. Where this is useful is in understanding the purpose behind it and how to get started. Because I've seen managers make requests and start projects that just sort of fizzle out, or a lot of effort is putting put into something that's never used. So that whole wasteful time comes up. And I want to make a distinction here because this isn't the same as testing a hypothesis where you expect to have some failures. That's not wasted time. This is where a decision's made to go produce something and people start working on it, but they're not really sure how it's going to be used. So they're not really sure where to start and where to go with it. This could be anything from a PowerPoint deck to a research report to a marketing campaign. Uh, if the purpose isn't clear, there's a good chance people are going to spin their wheels and waste time. So starting with the end in mind forces you to think about how you're going to use the output that's produced. And of course, it doesn't guarantee success, but what we're looking to, to do is to use thought processes to improve our probability of success. That eliminates one of the most frustrating things to me, which is shifting goalposts. If you don't begin with the end in mind, then it's really easy for that goal to change over time. And then it gets really frustrating for the people who are trying to implement that vision or achieve that goal to even know what they're striving for. But at the same time, you have to be able to pivot. If you realize that what you're striving for isn't exactly what you need, you have to be able to have the freedom or the flexibility, I think, to shift a little. So how would you deal with a situation like that? Yeah, no, that, that's a, it's a good point. And I think in this case, starting with the end in mind doesn't have to be the very end because you might it might not always be 100% clear the very end, but you need some part before that that you can call like a checkpoint or a phase whatever you call it, there's an end to that point. And at least be clear on where that stopping point is. You know, in, in development, they have, you know, different agile methodologies and stuff, but it's all about knowing exactly what your end point is in two weeks or four weeks. But you still need to know what that end, in, what that end is because to your point, uh, this is where scope creep happens or people just get lost and they start spinning their wheels because... If you don't start with an end in mind, you just start with an idea and you start going forward, you don't even know if you're on the right path. And then people say, well, what about this? Or can you do this instead? And a lot of time gets wasted by everyone. So at least take the time uh, to define what a specific end is, what it looks like, what it includes, what its purpose is. Um, you know, And I think... Because in, in, in an example where, you know, I've done data analysis, I've done work, there was no real clear purpose to how it was going to be used. So a lot of work was put into something and then it's handed over and it's like, okay, uh, this is cool. <laughs> but all right, well, I just spent two weeks doing something that's not even going to be used because they weren't sure. They just kind of wanted to see some output, but they didn't really know how they were going to use it. So I think if people, as managers especially, actually take the time uh, to define, you know, to start with that end in mind. It helps them understand how they're going to use what they get and it helps their team know the right steps forward. Do you have experience with false endpoints? And I just thought of that term, but the idea that someone says to you like, oh yeah, no, we, we, we know what we're going to do here. 
And as you, you maybe ask a question or two and you think, well, they, they really haven't thought it through. Do, do you, is that an experience you have? I imagine some of our listeners would probably say, yeah, you know, my, my boss comes in and says, oh yeah, do, do X, Y, and Z because we need X. And you're thinking, well, wait a second, that, you know, it doesn't quite make sense to me. Yeah. I have seen that. And I think one an, an example is I have seen, I've seen some like data scientists do work and they're producing something that they believe they were asked to do. And because someone gave them a direction and they said, we would like to understand, and I'm going to make this part up because I don't want to give specifics, but you know, we want to produce uh, some sales leads for a certain type of audience. And the data science team will start working on something. And, and I would work in, in this case, I had worked, I was working closely with them and they would produce an output and they would show it to me and they were really excited about what they found. And when I looked at it, I said, but how is it going to be used? Like, is right. somebody told you to produce this and I get it. They said, produce this, but I can't see how that connects to right. the end thing to see how it's going to be used. It's interesting, but it's not useful. Yeah. I, I asked that because that's really consistent with some of the experiences I had where everyone everyone would say, listen, I want a dashboard. I, I really need all this information in this dashboard. And so, you'd, so the, the teams would run off. You'd organize the data analyst. You've got the IT teams. They're sourcing information, writing SQL queries. And you come up with this beautiful dashboard. It's got the latest and greatest bells and whistles. And then you hand it over. And they, they say, this is amazing. And you ask, well, what, what decisions are you making and what actions are you taking? Well, we're, we're going to have to see. And then, you know, the, it kind of ran out of vogue because people were saying, well, I, I look at this information. I don't know what to do with it. Do I, you know, my sales are down here, I, I guess, but do I, I don't quite know why. So it, it's, it's similar, right? I, I was always asking the questions, what action are you going to take based on this activity, right? Um, but but it, it, it's good to hear that my, my experiences aren't unique, right? A lot of people are going to be challenged. Yeah. yeah, Myron and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, even dashboards and that type of thing because we've done a lot of projects similar to that. And we have learned that that is a starting point is to ask the question, what decisions are you going to make with this? So exactly the way that you said it is a good starting point for that. What are you going to do? And that goes with starting with the end in mind. What are yeah. you going to do with this? Once you get it, understand what that end is so that people don't go down the wrong path and waste time, which then leads me to my third model. Actually, it ties into this, which is probably my favorite, is seeking out value. And it's basically a validation process, which is different than the purpose for something. The purpose is why you're, the value is what you get out of doing. So seeking out value really makes you think about the impact something could have if you do it. And it helps to prioritize different options that come up and different ideas. And this is where, and, and maybe this even ties into what you were just saying, this is where people will feel like they intuitively believe something will have value. So they'll request it or they'll ask for it because they believe it'll have value. But if you really make yourself as a manager, as a leader, if you really make yourself define a few bullet points of what the expected impact would be if you did this, then the probability of your time, everyone's time, money being well spent increases. Seeking out value to really define a few bullet points, sometimes that's all it takes, is at least a few bullet points of defining what would the impact be if we did this or if I had this. And, and I'll say that uh, some of these models, you know, these three that I talked about, they sound so simple that they don't even seem like that they're models, uh, which I've heard people say. But 
my response is that it's the practicality of them. That if you act with intention to use them, that's why we call them supermodels, because they're practical, but they're things that make a big impact. And that reminds me of this idea of information overload. If you have this dashboard that just has everything thrown into it, that can be pretty overwhelming to people. So they could be sitting there just looking at all this information and going, oh my gosh, okay, just close this, please. I don't need to see all this. But if you just put a few bits of key information in there, they can process that much easier and they can take that information and use it. And then maybe once they get that process down, then you could add a few more bits of information in there. In that That's way, simplify. They could, yeah, they can maybe compartmentalize the different bits of information in their head. And they'll know that, okay, I need this to project sales. I need this to project, you know, hours that I need to have people work or something like that. And that reminds me, Back when I was in business school, I think it was Nissan back in the day where they had like, when you went in to buy a car, there was like 150 or 200 different like dashboard layouts you could have depending on what options you wanted. And they apparently realized they were losing sales over that because people couldn't decide. It was just too many little differences. So when they narrowed it down to like, you know, five or eight, something like this, and they actually improved the customer experience by doing that because it was just easier for the customer to process the information and make a decision. Yeah. So I I think what I'm taking from this is when you talk about seeking out value, sometimes simplifying is the best step to take in order to find that value rather than throwing everything, you know, the kitchen sink at a manager or something, and then just telling them to figure out what they want, give it to them in a much simpler way. And then they'll be able to take it and use it in a way that's beneficial. Yeah. I love simplification. And I think that that you know, it might be one of my superpowers that I'm able to to see things and deconstruct things and and simplify them. You know, I, because I find that a lot of people they just naturally overcomplicate something. So, like a dashboard, they think they want all of those things on there, but in reality, it needs to be more consumable for them and simplified. So, I agree with that. Yeah, we get into this mindset that more options is a better customer experience when the reality is that fewer options is is maybe the best way to go. I don't need more toothpaste options. No. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is that I use Crest because the cavity creeps are the ones that won when I in the commercials when I was a kid. So I always go with the guys that fight the cavity creeps. Right, right. Yeah, you just want to walk into the store and just pick... Grab That's that it. box right <laughs> off the shelf and get out. Yeah, I'm, I'm there with you on that one. Yeah, I imagine a lot of listeners are going to think about the, the challenges that they've experienced having to make those comparative choices once you're trying to identify value. So I, I really like that model, the idea of, of going after the value, understanding what it is, being able to articulate it simplistically. I think that just the going through the process is really powerful. H- have you seen um, people still struggle I guess, where do you see some of the biggest struggles for people with that? Because I, I, I find, I, I really like the idea with the intention to find value. And I could also see where a lot of people are going to struggle to understand, okay, what exactly does that mean? Is it, is it a metric that I need to look for? Is it something intrinsic? Is it just intuitive that I have to know? So could you, you know, if there's any context there you could share? One thing that I've learned is that, yes, it's a complicated process to go through, but if you actually find it really difficult to define value in something, then it might not be valuable. Mm. So I think I like that, that going through that process, while you know initially, you know, again, you might intuitively think there's value, 
And if you go through the process of defining a few bullet points that really explicitly explain that value, then it shouldn't be, you should be able to get, I'm not saying that it's an easy process, but you should be able to get to it. If you're struggling with just three bullet points of defining the value, there might not be value there. And I've used that process to weed out a lot of projects and requests that come through because if they, if I can't get three bullet points on what the impact would be if this was done, <laughs> then yeah, right it needs there, to be yeah. rethought. It needs to be rethought right. somehow because if you anything that has true value, you should be able to at least write a few things down to say, here's the impact this is going to have. And it, And there aren't specific metrics. It could be a financial impact, a certain key metric, a support metric. It could be anything. But if you're bringing it up, if you're bringing up the idea, you have something in mind. You have an, uh, a problem you're trying to solve or an opportunity that you're going after. And if you can define the value, at least in a few bullet points, at least initially, then there's something to go after. If not, it should go to the, the back of the pile and revisit it. Back of the pile. I, I like that. It, it seems to be applying the Pareto principle of, of knowing that there's 20% of those request out there they're going to deliver 80 percent of the impact if you're if you're doing the inverse if you're focused on the other 80 percent that do 20 it, it should be pretty clear pretty quickly right uh, that uh, you're, you're struggling because they're, they're not at the top of the list or, or most likely they shouldn't be at the top of the list yeah and all of these models are about improving your efficiency and and reducing your time wasted is what you're trying to do with these models you know you're trying to just be more deliberate and make decisions more quickly to say, is it valuable or not valuable? If, if it's not, the fast, the sooner I can identify that, I can get rid of it. Because, you know, you'll find in organizations, everybody's just running around doing so many things that half of it, probably 80% of it, uh, it isn't as high value as people think that it, it is. I really like that framework. In fact, I'm I'm kind of having second thoughts about releasing this episode. So I'm thinking if we can kind of keep that framework secret, then maybe we can use <laughs> that to gain a competitive advantage over everyone. But uh, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll definitely release it. So you, you yeah. just went through three mental models. Let's say that you're a manager and you feel like you're stuck and you just can't seem to push forward. So do you have a mental model that you would, could recommend that would help that manager have a big impact on their organization. One thing that they can implement pretty easily and quickly. Yeah. Well, my, my approach to that would be, I think to have the biggest impact on your, uh, on your company, on your career, you should learn how to combo those three that I just talked about. And Myra and I have an episode where I talk about Mortal Kombat, which was a favorite game of mine as a kid. Uh, and to win, you had to be good at combos or combination punches. So you can combine these three top models into a single approach and make a big impact. Like if you have a strategic idea or opportunities you want to consider, you could first communicate your intention, share all the facts about what you're thinking, and then start with the end in mind, explain the purpose of your idea. Like a simple example might be, maybe you want new sales leads. So that's the end. And to get those, you launch a marketing campaign for the purpose of introducing a new product so that you can get existing customers interested. And then you want to seek out the value of your idea, which could be what impact do I want this marketing campaign to have? Do I want to get a thousand responses within 30 days that can be used by the sales team? And those thousand responses could be converted into X dollars. So I think you can 
practically combine all three of these models into a single approach that makes them really powerful. And that's why I consider these to be my core principles, that if you just think about them as three core principles that you can always use in most situations, that combination of applying them in, you know, in approaching situations, I think that's what's really powerful here. Not just one single model per se, but the combination of three that really work together. Okay, mark it down. I think today is the birth of the Mortal Kombat mental model. I like that. The, you, the combo <laughs> I was more Street Fighter myself, so I'm just going to put uh, that out there. Okay, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> the game where there yeah, were no uh, combos of any kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like the combos. Yeah, and that's great because it goes beyond just helping your organization. Like you said, that's the same. That's a model you can put together to help your own career, but it's also a model you can just use in your personal life as well. Whether it's cooking dinner for that hot young lady or hot young guy that's coming over to, you know, I don't know, rebuilding your car or something like that, or just maintaining a relationship. Um, I think that's that's wonderful. Yeah, there there are ways to apply different models uh, in in life, and you know, I think an example of that is. I have a teenage daughter, actually, who's in high school, and I really wish they'd teach model thinking in school, but she's starting to think about college and you know, trying to figure all of that out. Of course, figuring out what you want to do in life could be pretty difficult for a lot of people, and she was going through that as well. You know, What am I even interested in? What do I like? So I suggested a couple of things. I said, as you're watching TV and reading books, put yourself in the character's place and visualize yourself doing what they're doing and try to guess what decisions they're going to make before they make them and see if you enjoy that process. And of course, it's not a perfect tool for deciding what you want to major in in college, but it's at least a structured process. And that's what's important. And I think that that just shows models, mental models are structured processes that you can apply to not just middle management and leadership, but there are areas of life that you can apply the structured thing. That takes us into the next question. And I think we've got about three minutes left or so, so we can go through this as quickly as we need to. But one of the reasons why Paul and I started this podcast is we saw that in society, people, they're talking past each other. They're not talking to each other. And the the level of discourse has become very shallow. So we want people to be able to approach life using these models or you know whatever way works for them to help improve the discourse because we think that'll improve society if we can make people communicate with each other better. Like you said, using mental models in your your personal life we think is a great thing. So if you run into somebody who disagrees with you on some point, whether it's political or could be a, a management technique, you know, whatever. What mental models would you use to approach that conversation so that you can come out of it in a win-win situation where both of you, you can come to an agreement or maybe you agree to not agree, but you come out of it, both sides feeling good and able to move on and possibly have learned something. Well, that certainly happens. <laughs> uh, and uh, by the way, I, I have I have more time if you guys want to keep going. It's up to you. Okay. Um, but you know, in this case, uh, a technique that I've used is an inverse method. You know, like if if somebody doesn't want to move forward with me, then I'll try to work backwards. And an example of this um, is a project that I was leading several years ago, uh, and I wanted to define our process with the team that we were going to follow, and the team had no interest. <laughs> in anything that would control them. So, uh, and, and we went back and forth a lot 
on this. Um, so in a meeting one day, I just started asking questions like, what does the, the final solution actually do? Which led to, so what are the issues that could come up? What do you have to do before you can even get that done? How long would that take to do? And at some point, one of the guys said, you just tricked us. You made us define a plan. And I was like, I just wrote down your answers to my questions. So I would say, you know, if somebody doesn't agree with one angle, you know, try to maybe work backwards, reverse it, try another angle. Instead of just trying to fight with them because they don't agree with your approach, try another angle. Yeah. When you were saying that, what I was hearing in my head, or, say, or saying to myself in my head, I guess, one of the voices was anyway, I think the other voices were like singing or something, <laughs> is that you're, you're starting with the end. So that goes back to your start with the end in mind. And then you're working backward from that. And I think if you agree on what the end is, then it's easier to take those steps back rather than starting from the beginning and then arguing about what the path is going to be forward. Is that, am I getting that right? No, that's a a great explanation of it. Yeah. Because if people don't agree with you, is what is it that they're not agreeing with? Are they not agreeing with the approach that you're wanting to take? And that was the, the case here. But if you can come to an agreement to an end point, now you at least have something you can start working backwards from. Right. And I think that signals to the other person that you're you're on the same side, right? Because mm-hmm. you both are agreeing, hey, we need to get to this end point. Now let's discuss the best way to get there. Yeah, that's that's yeah. wonderful. I like that. Yeah, that's that's really powerful when you're able there's an acknowledgement there, right? That once you have that agreement, it's almost like, wait a second, we're we're wearing the same jersey, right? Maybe maybe we think we need to be more on offense versus defense, but we're wearing the same jersey. We both want to win the game. Let's that's it takes down some of those barriers. You know, the temperature can drop a little bit. Yeah. Agreed. Do you have any signals that you look for to tell you that you're just not going to be able to work with this person or have a discussion with them? Like maybe you can't agree on an end? <laughs> that would be a good one. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I would say if somebody's ideals are just different than mine, then you probably can't agree on an end. And I mean, of course, politics, religion, those are some of the, the common things where you have ideals that people just don't agree on the end. And a lot of difficult conversations are had around those. Um, but I think a more a more simple view on it is uh, an example is I, I you know I worked with a manager one time several years ago that you know he really believed that everybody should work a minimum of ten hours a day and more if you wanted brownie points and he would start projects and set deadlines assuming that that's the window of time that that everybody's going to work and then the team was just overwhelmed and never successful and um, you know in this case I ended up leaving after a few months. Because I knew that I wasn't going to get anywhere with him. And what I learned from that is that if somebody's ideals are just fundamentally different than mine, and they're not open to other approaches, and I can't trick them with the inverse method, uh, you have to make a decision. Is it worth the value to fight? Sometimes it's just better to step away. Because if you can't agree on the end and your ideals are different, step away. Uh, first of all, I like that it's it's a recognition, right? It takes some introspection as well, which I, I think many people struggle with. Just having the time to reflect. I remember there was a there was someone who spoke um, at a conference I was at, and they talked about how their entire career they had journaled, and I didn't know anybody who journaled. Uh, and and he talked about his approach. I mean, it was very specific to his work life, right? Uh, and he he made it a habit. Uh, this was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, so he had been very successful in what he had done. 
it gave him a superpower, which was to reflect on his interactions, what were working. It was a historical record of how his mind was changing and adopting. And then it gave him, I think, tools, reference points that he could go back and, and ask those types of questions. Where am I? Or are the ideals differently? Have there been times that maybe my ideals have changed where I, you know, maybe I was informed one way, getting new information is going to change some of that. So I, I think that's, I think that's great. I guess on a personal level, Myron had this really interesting idea about the idea that I don't want algorithms to control me. Right? He was this, wrong. This, he no, was I'm wrong. Just <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. He was. He, I'm sure he was. No, right. he's always. He's always right. <laughs> that's an algorithm too. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it always leads us to the same point. Yeah, don't don't do that because I've been going around telling everybody about other people's algorithms that is the greatest thing. So don't, <laughs> don't come on here and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> but I, I, I guess do you have a similar perspective? This idea that I'm not going I'm gonna try and create barriers to other people's algorithms because I want to make sure I keep my algorithms kind of known. Right? It's it's almost like having your own your algorithms be open source, and you do that by knowing what's actually doing the processing, which is creating a barrier. Uh, do, do you have a, uh, what is your sense on that? What are you, what are you thinking? I don't have as great of a story or, or thoughts on that as, as Myron did. He's, he's very thoughtful when it comes to that. Uh, you know, I, I just simply try to uh, see others point of view. So, you know, I, I kind of change the perspective often. So uh, if, if I'm thinking about something one way and somebody's disagreeing with, me, I actually take the time to think maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I actually give them the benefit of the doubt and think, well, maybe I'm wrong. Let me at least think about this for a second and see it from their perspective. Maybe I come back around to my way of thinking, but I at least kind of go through that process of, let me see how they're thinking about it. Am I missing something? Um, if I still believe the way I believe, then then that's that's fine. But I at least want to kind of do a 360 and see, let me look from multiple perspectives here. We had a, a guest on named George Silverman, and one of the questions, one of the first questions he advises people to ask is, what does this person possibly know that I don't know? And then you can start fashioning questions from there to try to get more information. No, that's, it's a great point. And I think it's, it is important to just see the other person's perspective and not just assume that you're right, but to see what, what could I be missing? Right. I can't possibly have all of the information. Right. What data points here am I missing? It's very, very simple, but very powerful concepts that applied routinely, you're going to have productive conversations. You're also probably going to have productive silence when you realize that there's nothing that you can, you need to share right now. I personally, I know there's times when I feel this emotional reaction type to it. And instead of, if I'm able to cut that short circuit it with a question as simple as that, well, maybe that's, I'm going to assume that they know something that I don't know, either through their experience or their study. I'm going to fashion the, the the conversation to be around exploring that rather than sharing where maybe my frustrations are coming from or I've got my built-in bias. Um, it's yeah, it's a that's a really again, great point. Simple, but it, it it can be really really productive. And I think most of us would agree more productive conversations would be a benefit to, yes. <laughs> to just about everybody. Yes, I know. I said the last question we could go through pretty quickly, and I don't think we did that very well. But these last couple, we'll try to rush through. And if you need to go, just just holler and we can let you go. But the last year, year and a half has been pretty challenging. So what is the most important lesson that you've learned in that time? Well, I don't know if I really learned this, but it became more apparent to me that the value of discipline is pretty powerful. I saw it 
with my daughter who's in high school. I saw it with people in business, people that I work with. Being forced to stay home and to work from home and do school from home really separated people who had the discipline to learn how to do it and those who struggled with it. Students, uh, I saw, had to force themselves to participate in school because the teachers weren't able to make you. You know, you didn't have to turn your camera on. They didn't know if you were there or not. So if you didn't have the discipline to actually participate, then you didn't perform well. And then I saw the people who had never worked from home before initially finding themselves either working from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. because they could just get up and walk over to their computer or they had difficulties dealing with distractions at home. So you had to figure out and create an environment that enabled you to be productive. So that's what, you know, I, I just saw become more apparent, uh, more apparent that just this value of discipline of being disciplined is, is really powerful. I definitely understand that. I, I heard, had to learn a lot of discipline uh, when I started working from home. Imagine you woke up tomorrow in a brand new world. What would it look like? Well, this is something that I've been saying for a long time that I wish somebody would make a protein bar that tasted like tacos. <laughs> I really don't like triple fudge brownies and I don't want to go make a taco. It would be very convenient if somebody could make taco flavored protein bars for me. All right, Paul, but, Paul, uh, get on that. <laughs> All right, that's that's on my to-do list. Yeah, I'm not sure right. I have the discipline to execute, but it's on my to-do list. <laughs> Other than that, though, you know, I think a brand new world um, that would be interesting is one that would be easier to have tasty, healthy foods. It would definitely have self-driving cars. And, of course, I love crypto and really believe in the digital economy. So this brand new world would have that. And I think that we're at least getting close to two out of three for these. Well, when the 3D printed food comes, that that revolution comes. Your 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 taco power bars. My world's be, complete. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure. Maybe I made the wrong assumption about which of the two of the three you were expecting. I'm. I, oh. I think those are pretty much all foregone conclusions. <laughs> yeah, that, they, they they could all very well happen. Paul and I railed on. Uh, we did an episode recently where we talked about Bill Gates. Uh, how to what what is it, Paul? How to avoid a climate disaster or climate how catastrophe? To avoid a, I don't yeah, know. how to avoid a climate disaster? The breakthroughs that we need. He had a section in there about eating fake meat, lab-grown meat, and and Paul and I had a good fun, had a bit of fun <laughs> railing against <laughs> that. Um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe our future is just flavored protein bars and and every flavor that you can imagine. Uh, so. It's not fun. It's certainly not fun. So I, I, I don't think I would eat it every day. But uh, yeah, as as a cook, I'm biased towards <laughs> okay. you know, the natural products. Right. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, All yeah, right. yeah. We came to the conclusion that something like a hamburger that has one ingredient, beef, is much better than a hamburger that has 18 different ingredients that all sound like chemicals. <laughs> for sure, we are biased. Yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's, that's great. Sure. And you know, you mentioned crypto, and my first thought when we invited you on was to talk about crypto. But I know that you guys have season two going, yeah. and you're talking about crypto over there. So I didn't want to steal your thunder. But once you guys get through that, I know I think we're going to want to talk to you again uh, to just pick your brain on crypto. Paul's pretty well enmeshed in that community or but I'm I'm new to it so I'm just learning. Um so I think that would be a lot of fun and folks go listen to Mental Supermodels, listen to season 1 uh where they talked about that strategy to execution uh plan it, it, that was great and now their season 2 is underway with Bitcoin 
uh, and crypto. Is that right? You're going to talk about Bitcoin and crypto in general? Yeah, o- overall, kind of the, the, the whole concepts behind that. Okay. Yeah. So folks go check that out. And uh, Jeremy, uh, where can folks reach you and any closing thoughts? Uh, well, I, you know, I can be reached. You can go to mentalsupermodels.com. That's where Myron and I post our podcasts and I could be emailed. Uh, I use Thomas at zoomani.com or Thomas at Northwood Advisors. That would be a better one to use. Thomas at northwoodadvisors.com. Same as Myron. And I guess in closing, I'd like to just give a quick backstory on the origins of my mental modeling processes, because I think this will take us to the end here. Okay. Uh, you know, because I go back to a couple of things. First, my undergraduate degree is actually in finance, where I learned some foundational structures of, of modeling, like financial models, the economic models. Uh, but then out of school, which you know was over 25 years ago, I actually went to go work for Microsoft doing phone support. And this was pre-internet uh, where you had to blindly walk people step by step over the phone to solve their problems. And I had to learn how to visualize what the customer was seeing and what they were doing so that I could walk them through you know, solving their problems. So I think a combination of that financial modeling with visualization of phone support wired something in my brain. Hmm. Uh, and I believe that that's what helps me, you know, the way with the way that I think. So if I bring that forward to today, you know, I would say that everybody has different experiences and perspectives that drive their opinions. And it creates differences in the way that people approach situations. But as a leader, it's critical to get everybody on the same page. I've seen a lot of times where managers will look for physical templates you know, written out templates to help guide them and their teams. They'll always ask for, can I get a template that'll help me, you know, define this? And I've seen those fail more often than not. But if you can work together, understanding each other's differences uh, to establish common techniques that everyone can use to think through problems and decisions, that that's what makes people more efficient and ultimately effective. Excellent. I think I'm just going to not say much after that because I think that's a great spot to uh, to end. Uh, so, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And folks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was great. And folks, go check out Mental Supermodels. It's one of my go-to podcasts, and they've got just a ton of great information over there. So go check it out. That's mentalsupermodels.com. Thank you. It's good to talk to you guys. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks.